Africa, rise and shine. Africa, tuta. Africa, amka na unai. morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at Asawa, Concerns over abductions of political activists in Zimbabwe and Rwanda prepared to receive 500 migrants from Libya. In economics news, Nigeria's president tells Central Bank not to fund food imports. And in sports news, South Africa's under-20 soccer team participation in Africa Games hangs by a thread. First up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. A large police contingent has been deployed to the Soweto Township in Johannesburg in South Africa. After foreign-owned shops were looted overnight, community members say the foreign-owned shops were looted to avenge the incidents that happened in the Johannesburg CBD last week when foreign nationals attacked police during a raid on those who trade in counterfeit goods. Police have confirmed that shops were looted in different parts of Soweto, a large police contingent has been deployed to the areas. Foreign nationals have removed goods from some of their shops to a place of safety. Police spokesperson Kay Makubele. Police have been deployed in and around the area to make sure that the community who are owning the puzzle shops, they remove their things to wherever they can uh, be safe. The call is the community of Soweto. Let them be calm If they've got grievances, let them take their grievances to the relevant authority. The former head of the Sudanese intelligence service, Salah Ghosh, has been banned from entering the U.S. because of his alleged involvement in human rights violations. The BBC's Adam Aguirre reports. The U.S. State Department says it has credible evidence that Salah Ghosh was involved in torture. He was the man in charge of Sudan's National Intelligence and Security Services when President Omar al-Bashir was ousted from power in April. He was considered to be the regime's second most powerful man and is accused of spearheading the deadly crackdown on pro-democracy protests in the months leading up to the coup. On Saturday, the Transitional Military Council and the Forces for Freedom and Change Coalition are expected to sign a formal declaration that paves the way to civilian rule in Sudan. Tunisia's Electoral Commission has approved 26 candidates, including two women, for next month's presidential election and has rejected 71 other applicants. The September 15 vote follows the death last month of Bir Seyere Sipsi, the first president to be democratically elected in Tunisia after the popular uprising of 2011. It will be the third free election in Tunisia since that uprising. The Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has described the decision to revoke Kashmir's autonomy as a major achievement of his government within weeks of its re-election. In a nationwide broadcast to mark India's Independence Day, Modi said the articles of the Indian Constitution that provided the special status was stopping Kashmiris from fulfilling their dreams and aspirations. My fellow dear Indians, Jammu and Kashmir can become an inspiration for prosperity and happiness for the rest of the country. It can provide a major contribution for the development of India. We should work towards helping Kashmiris to celebrate their traditional ways of life. We should all help the state. The new system we are setting up should be able to achieve that. 
Indian opposition leaders and neighbouring Pakistan have criticised the decision. And finally, King Mohammed of Morocco will no longer celebrate his birthday with a ceremony at the Royal Palace. Officials have not given a reason for the decision made ahead of the monarch's 57th birthday on the 21st of this month. Morocco's calendar is dotted with holidays and festivals marking dates of importance to the monarchy, which has ruled the kingdom since 1664. Last month, the royal household asked Moroccans to celebrate a two-day holiday to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the king's reign on the 30th and 31st of July without extravagance. A new constitution was introduced in 2010, expanding the powers of parliament and the prime minister, but leaving the king with broad authority over all branches of government. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa 1. On Twitter, at Channel Africa 1. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Zimbabwe's main opposition party has vowed to go ahead with protests on Friday against the worsening economy, dismissing government threats to stop the demonstrations. The protests will be the first since rallies in January against President Emerson Nagagwa's decision to hike fuel prices that ended in deadly clashes with troops. Simon Machema reports from Harare. Zimbabwe is on a knife edge owing to economic decline that has left millions of citizens poorer just in the past 18 months. President Robert Mugabe's successor, Emerson Mnangagwa, was in November 2017 welcomed as the new leader after a coup as many people felt Mnangagwa was a better devil than Mugabe, hence the high expectations. However, the situation in Zimbabwe today is that of confrontations as the ruling ZANU-PF and MDC fight over relevance. Tensions are rising in the Zimbabwean capital as preparations for the August 16 protests are gaining momentum. During a press briefing in Harare on Wednesday, MDC spokesperson Daniel Molokele bemoaned increased abductions of party youths ahead of Friday protest. We are aware that abductions happened last night. The National Chairperson for the Young People, the Youth Assembly in Mfakose, was abducted last night and the people who beat him up and uh, tortured him were accusing him of organizing the, the march on Friday. So it's all indications are that it's linked to desperate panic attempts to disrupt the preparations. And we are urging all Zimbabweans not to be afraid because fear is the enemy of progress. If Zimbabwe is going to move forward, it is time for us to stand up and freely express ourselves in line with the constitution of this country. The so-called new dispensation is saying they are different from Mugabe. So on Friday, it's a test for them to show the world how different they are from Mugabe. But indications are that it's same old, same old, and it's up to them to prove otherwise. Government has always denied responsibility of any abductions and torture against the MDC activists, although people have been tortured and killed. In 2008, hundreds of MDC youths were abducted and killed ahead of the runoff elections by armed men suspected to be linked to the state. Renowned former journalist Justina Mkoko was also abducted and tortured, but she was discharged of any offense and she sued the state. MDC youth leader Obey Stole expressed concern over increased abductions. So from the moment we announced that as a party, we are going to be embarking on a series of action. They've just uh, become a panic regime, a panic government. So some of their tactics that they are employing is to abduct people from the comfort of their homes. But I would like to assure uh, the Zimbabwean citizens today and in future again that you are never deterred by what they do. We know their tactics uh, for a long time ago. That is not enough to deter the fighting spirit that has engulfed the people of Zimbabwe. The people of Zimbabwe have suffered for long and it is their suffering that is going to motivate them to do more 
than the intimidation tactics that ZANU-PF is employing to the people of Zimbabwe. What you are doing is not anything illegal. What you are doing is a, gener a, a generational cause, a genuine cause to say enough is enough, like what has been alluded earlier on. The suffering that you are having today is a product of the failed regime, a failed government led by one Emerson Mnangagwa and his cabal in ZANU-PF. So going forward, what assembly going to do, uh, starting from Friday, it's going to be a way of sending a clear message. Despite threats and intimidations ahead of the protests, MDC urged citizens to come out and participate. On one hand, ZANU-PF appears to be panicking and issuing threats. However, Molokele had this to say. But we are urging all Zimbabweans, starting with Harare on Friday, to come out in their numbers. At the end of the day, it's not just about the MDC, it's about everyone else. Everyone who is suffering, come out. We are giving you a platform to express yourself. 500,000 people, let it be. Half a million, let it be. One million, let it be. But what you are saying is, come out, Zimbabweans. Come out. Come and express yourself freely according to the law and constitution of this country. Meanwhile, MDC says the protests against misrule, corruption and general economic decline shall be peaceful. The MDC is a peaceful party and we are a law-abiding party. And to that end, we have made sure that we have complied with the requirements both of the Constitution of Zimbabwe, especially under Section 59, which gives us the right to demonstrate, to petition peacefully. We've also made sure that we've complied with the law and order maintenance provisions, especially under the Public Order and Security Act. Last week, we notified the police according to the law. And we need to very, to very clearly state that the police do not have the authority to stop the match. Their responsibility, according to the law of the country, is to ensure that the match is peaceful. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Rwanda and Libya are currently working out a relocation plan for some 500 migrants being held in detention centers in the North African country. Rwanda's intervention comes amid harrowing revelations that the migrants, most of them from West Africa, are being sold openly in modern-day slave markets in Libya. Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. The new development announced by the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Cooperation but added that the final touch on the decision is still being worked for by African Union, Libyan government, as well as other stakeholders. The first group, for which the relocation date has not been confirmed yet, constitutes 500 migrants who are currently stuck in Libya. The initiative came from Rwanda's offer that dates back to 2017, when the country made it public it was planning to receive some of illegal migrants from Libya. Rwanda State Minister of Foreign Affairs and Cooperation Ambassador Olivier Ndhunjirehe was currently quoted as saying the plan of relocation is still undergoing some final touches as the country continues to discuss the matter with other partners. The migrants are expected to be received under an emergency plan. Rwanda's President Paul Hagame assures that everything is in place to host those Africans who seem to be desperate. Rwanda remains prepared to provide uh, our own uh, modest uh, involvement, support, sanctuary for those migrants who wish to come here or through here back to where they had come from in the first place. For Rwandans, this sounds good. Also, this serves as a commitment most of them had committed, basing on the tragic history of this country to always intervene for those in dire need. This is one of them. Do you reflect on Rwanda's past and what Rwanda has gone through as a country immediately after the genocide, um, even during the, the genocide that was perpetrated against the, the, the Tutsi people? Um, Rwandans needed a rescue from other countries. They needed to um, move to other countries as refugees. You know, So it's something that... Um, uh, we as Rwandans know that we would want something, another country to do for us, you know. So that's why we want to give the same help. The 500 migrants from Libya to Rwanda are diverse, a move that worries some other Rwandans, especially whether or not they might get what they were initially looking for from overseas countries. I just doubt if they are going to get what they wanted, but 
because some of these people they left their countries because of different uh, issues some political others economic so if they wanted for those people who wanted uh, to get rich quickly from the western countries are they going to get that thing that they wanted from this uh, the, the european countries here in rwanda it's difficult so president pokagame says the starting point is a good heart that african countries have to have if the continent needs to address its problems without showing empty hands to donors in actual fact the first place is in our hearts then the second place is the physical one which can be managed also in many different ways uh, so there is no country that is too small to have all its own people and others the government of rwanda has been generously hosting refugees for over two decades and coordinates the refugee response with the UNHCR as well as providing land to establish refugee camps and ensuring camp management and security. Silvanus Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. The number of migrants arriving from northern Africa via the central Mediterranean to Italy this year has plummeted. At the end of this month, only 3,600 asylum seekers had reached Italian shores compared to 120,000 people two years ago. But many more attempt the perilous journey and simply don't make it. Lampedusa, an Italian island close to Tunisia, has seen hundreds of thousands of migrants disembark at its port over the past few years. The BBC's Emma Jane Kirby has been speaking to locals about the rising death toll. It's the height of the summer season here in Lampedusa and as you can probably hear the local beaches are packed with tourists who are flocking to the island now that the number of migrants arriving here has fallen so dramatically. This beautiful cobalt blue stretch of water is just perfect for holidaymakers. But actually, the Mediterranean has now become the world's deadliest sea crossing. In 2017, one person out of 41 died. In 2018, one person out of 17. And now, so far, in only seven months, one person out of six. Marco Rotuno works for the UN refugee agency, UNHCR, across Italy. He's concerned that the ending of maritime patrols, such as the EU's Operation Sophia, which have rescued thousands of migrants trying to make the perilous Mediterranean crossing from North Africa to Europe, is contributing to the rise in deaths at sea. If states do do not restore search and rescue capacity, we will have other tragedies and they will make this this number much higher than, than it is now. Italy's hard-right Deputy Prime Minister, Matteo Salvini, has closed all Italian ports to NGO and humanitarian search and rescue vessels. In June this year, the German captain of the charity ship Sea-Watch 3, which had rescued migrants near Libya, defied those orders and docked at Lampedusa, insisting she had a duty to protect her human cargo. She was arrested as soon as she left the ship, accused of being a pirate and an outlaw. Angela Maraventano from Salvini's Lager Party insists the Italian government is right to impound NGO search and rescue vessels. I don't think it's true, she says, about a rise in deaths. Lampedusa hasn't seen any corpses arriving. At the moment, we've got ships operating which aren't Navy or government-authorized ships, and it's been hard to establish if the operators are really savers of the sea or traffickers themselves. But I haven't seen any bodies arriving in Lampedusa, so this data is not reliable. Pietro Bartolo, the doctor of Lampedusa, is always on the phone. Always. This was him three years ago when we last visited the island. And that was the sound of him hurling his facts against the wall in exhaustion and frustration after years of treating hundreds of thousands of migrant arrivals, many of whom were little girls who'd been beaten and raped. Today he looks more shattered than ever and he's ditched doctoring for European politics.
Lately, I've not been here much, he admits, from behind his heavily lidded, dark-circled eyes. I'm at the European Parliament now. I'm an MEP in Brussels for the left. I'm at the Parliament because I want to change things, and I realize from here you can't change anything. He holds his head in his hands. You just see suffering from here. He goes on to tell me that he's part of a parliamentary working group revising asylum policy and that he hopes that in Brussels he can make the difference. It's true, he says wretchedly, it's true that the death toll is increasing. For 30 years I've been visiting migrants, treating them, doing autopsies on them, but nothing changes. I've written books, taken part in films, what more can I do? And I thought, maybe this is the right thing. He looks up at me and I see that he's close to tears. Today, he says, squeezing his mobile phone very tightly, there are bills proposed to make saving a person at sea become a crime. That's something that violates all human rights, our constitution, even international law, because it's a duty to help. But in fact, now, it's a crime. The BBC's Emma Jane Kirby reporting from the Mediterranean island of Lampedusa. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Doctors in the DRC say that two Ebola patients who were treated with new anti-Ebola drugs in Goma in the eastern Congo have been declared cured. Doctors fighting Ebola quickly used the case on Tuesday to press the message that people with Ebola can recover if they seek proper care. Januar Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The two patients, including a lady and her child, are now in good health and have been discharged on Tuesday from an Ebola treatment center in Goma, the capital city of the North Kivu province, to return home and join the family. They have been under treatment in the center for 11 days and their recovery has been described as a big success and a big message for all people here and out of the Democratic Republic of Congo that Ebola is a curable disease. The two lucky people were released during a ceremony that brought together so many people coming to witness their recovery. The head of the technical committee of repost against Ebola, Dr. Jean-Jacques Mouyembe, tells us about the ceremony. It was a, a very good ceremony yesterday because the two patients were treated in the Ebola treatment unit. They are very well now. The mother is very happy to go back uh, home. And she declared that uh, it is easy to acquire the Ebola infection, but now it is also very easy to be treated and uh, cure and uh, go back home. So this was a very, very strong message for the population of Goma yesterday. The Ebola outbreak has been described for long as a very deadly and incurable disease, but now health professionals are very happy. After the two molecules developed using antibodies harvested from survivors have shown a big success. This happens after tens of years of Ebola virus without a treatment and without a vaccine, but it's now a good news as a treatment is available and the disease is curable. A long story according to the head of the technical committee of repost against Ebola, Dr. Jean-Jacques Mouyembe. It is a very, very long history. You know that the virus was uh, detected for the first time in, in 1976, and now we have uh, 40 kids without treatment, without vaccine. The researchers in DRC and uh, in partnership with NIH and other scientific institutions, we started to see how to find molecules that uh, can treat Ebola infection. Our experience was in 1999 and 1995 in Kikwit. We transfused acute Ebola patients with uh, blood from uh, convalescent and uh, seven uh, out of eight patients treated 
many scientific institutions they try to explore these uh, preliminary results and uh, most of them find that uh, we can treat Ebola with monoclonal antibodies. We developed this um, technology and now we can say that we have uh, medicine to treat Ebola patients. And the lady on behalf of herself and her child didn't have any way to keep her emotion. She pressed the guard and called on people to know it very well that Ebola is a reality. Praise the Lord. I thank God a lot because I, with my child, were sick of Ebola and God has cured us. Please never doubt or say it doesn't exist. Ebola exists. Praise the Lord. Meanwhile, it's sure that the neighboring provinces of North Kivu in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and all the neighboring countries surrounding the DRC that side are out of danger. That's indeed what the Technical Committee of Post against Ebola, he said, the head of the committee, Dr. Jean-Jacques Mouyembe, told the Channel Africa, prudence is needed, but there is no more danger. We must be prudent because the first thing to do is to avoid the infection, and after that is to break the transmission. But if the disease is there, we can give medicine, monoclonal antibodies, and cure the patient. So coma is now free of Ebola. So we must maintain this situation. And so we have to strengthen our surveillance system and also the communication with the population. So we are more or less confident that um, Ebola will not come back to Goma. But we must work to have a good situation in other places. The Ebola outbreak started in the Beni territory of North Kivu in August last year and indeed more than 1,800 people of the more than 2,800 infected people have been killed in both provinces of North Kivu and Ituri in one year. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. South Africa has a new political party. Babai Vusimate launched the African Federal Convention, AFCO, in Johannesburg on Wednesday. Mate was the EFF's former head of intelligence in the Guazul-Natal province. In its reaction to the new party, the EFF has branded Mate as just a disgruntled former party member. Abongile Dumako reports. Yet another party has been launched in South Africa. The African Federal Convention's president, Babai Vusimate, says it's time for change and more needs to be done to empower ordinary citizens. Mate claims that the EFF has lost touch with the masses. I realize that the EFF is not representing the majority of this country. The EFF is a spazer shop of two people, Julius Malema as well as Floyd Chibambo. And I know why also the police of uh, one of the capital pillars of the FF, they wanted to nationalize land and the mineral resources. I know the, the whole, the, the, the background. Why? By that time, I was the head of intelligence in Guazulu-Natal under EFF. Mate claims that he started the EFF in 2013 and he knows everything about it and the ANC. I've been a part of them. I started the EFF in 2013. I know them. If you could remember, ANC and the EFF, they hate the traditional leaders. They want to destroy them. They don't need them. However, the EFF refutes these claims. The party's KwaZulu-Natal provincial chairperson Vusi Koza says that Mate was not elected into the EFF structures after the 2014 elections. Koza further claims that AFCO's leadership was expelled from the EFF. He is now disgruntled. He wants to get back at the EFF. We can tell you right away that uh, uh, these are just a bunch of disgruntled individuals. But as for them, they were expelled. They, they, they have no association with the EFF. Oh, but we don't have time for, 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 for these clowns who are bills with the organization. These people are not members of the EFF. They can uh, say, say whatever they want to say. We are just going to ignore them. AFCO claims that it already has 10,000 members across the country and is self-funded. I am Abongi Ledumago in Johannesburg. The Public Investment 
Commission of Inquiry in South Africa has concluded its public hearings into alleged impropriety at the state asset manager. The commission will now prepare its final reports for submission to President Sil Ramaphosa on October the 31st. Established in October 2018 by South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa, the commission began formal hearings on the 21st of January in 2019. To date, it has heard evidence from 77 witnesses. We will come back to that story after the headlines with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, a large police contingent has been deployed to the Soweto Township in Johannesburg in South Africa after foreign-owned shops were looted overnight. Former head of the Sudanese Intelligence Service, Salah Ghosh, has been banned from entering the U.S., because of his alleged involvement in human rights violations. And Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has described the decision to revoke Kashmir's autonomy as a major achievement of his government within weeks of its re-election. Those are the stories making headlines. We go back to that story on the PIC. After eight long months, the Commission of Inquiry into the PIC finally wrapped up its public hearings this week. Commission Chairperson Justice Lex Mpati. Today marks the end of the scheduled public hearings on allegations of impropriety at the PIC as outlined in the 17 terms of reference that guide the work of the Commission. It is now our task to review, assess, make findings, propose recommendations and prepare our final report in keeping with these terms of reference. In addition to the investigations and testimonies that have been presented to the Commission over the past eight months, further possible questionable transactions have come to the attention of the investigation team. The team will continue with their investigations. The Commission had evidence from 77 witnesses, including the corporation's former CEO, Dr. Dan Majila, who appeared 12 times. They also heard testimony from former PIC executive and staff members. Justice and Party says they will now compile and prepare their final report to be handed over to President Sir Ramaphosa at the end of October this year. If deemed appropriate and necessary, further limited public hearings may be held. Anyone with evidence or who has been mentioned in evidence to date and wishes to place their version of events on record are welcome to submit their testimony by way of sworn affidavits and all such submissions will form part of the testimonies that will be considered by the Commission when writing our report. The Commission's interim report was submitted to the President on 15th of February 2019. Since then, the term of the Commission has been extended twice from the 15th of April to the 31st of July and then again to the 31st of October this year. Businessman and former unionist Jayendra Naidu was the last to testify this week. He told the commission the PIC wanted to invest further into Steinhoff because they had governance concerns and for so commercial benefits of the investment. Naidu, who would have served on the Steinhoff board, would have exerted some sort of influence in favor of the PIC. He told the commission the PIC would have heard a friendly on the board. Naidu's company Lancaster 101 received a 9.3 billion run funding facility from the PIC to invest in Steinhoff. Naidu owned 25% of Lancaster, while the PIC held 50%. The remaining 25% was allocated to a triple BEE group. The PIC Lancaster deal was concluded months before the collapse of Steinhoff. PIC saw the benefit of the commercial nature of the proposal and was also keen to access the strategic influence that could arise from the relationship between Lancaster Group and Steinhoff. I was being invited to become a part of a leadership group. There was more strategic influence that was capable of being associated with this transaction 
than simply buying a share uh, through the stock exchange on the market in an anonymous way. Last year, President Cyril Ramaphosa established the PIC Commission to investigate the veracity of alleged improprieties with the aim of restoring confidence in the corporation. The PIC is important as it is tasked at managing 2 trillion rands worth of assets for more than 98% of government employees. I am Amina Akram in Pretoria. The fourth annual Top Women's Conference in partnership with Standard Bank and South Africa's Commission for Gender Equality is a renowned initiative that connects the public and private sectors by identifying, recognizing, celebrating and sharing best practices of different organizations and individuals who can clearly demonstrate success on projects aligned with gender empowerment. Channel Africa will be at Empress Palace on Wednesday the 14th and Thursday the 15th of August to cover this Women's Month event. Join African Dialogue and Humanity for the gender event. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. Nigeria is the second largest contributor to global maternal deaths after India as a result of inadequate health facilities and lack of skilled personnel. While working at a local hospital in Nigeria, one woman, Dr. Kikelomo Mbada, noticed even with these high numbers and without a shortage of resources that it was business as usual for the political leadership. So she decided to conduct research on the relationship between politics and maternal health in Nigeria. Nigeria. Sarah Kimani met up with her on the sidelines of a summit for African researchers in Senegal and filed this report. The United Nations estimates that Nigeria has approximately 58 maternal deaths every year. That's at least 800 women dying in every 100,000 live births. Dr. Kikolomo Mbada, a researcher in Nigeria. Every year we have more than 300,000 women who die from preventable causes related to pregnancy and delivery. And Nigeria accounts for 19% of that population. This were, however, not just numbers for Dr. Mbada. This were her people, Nigerian women like her. So with funding from Qatar, Africa, a grantee of the African Academy of Sciences, she sought to understand why these numbers did not bother the country's leadership. Funding, it turns out, was not a major problem. I found out that the nature of political leadership plays a really strong role. The nature in terms of the character of political leadership, speaking to integrity, his personal idiosyncrasies, his ideological persuasions. So to meet Sustainable Development Goal 3 of reducing maternal deaths to less than 70 per 100,000 life births by 2030, Nigeria needs to reduce its maternal mortality rate by 7.5% every year, a tough call that she believes is doable with political will. I have recommended that there be a reorientation that allows the key political leaderships and critical stakeholders orientation that motivates them to push for safe motherhood as a policy priority in the country. Dr. Banda has begun dialogue with governors in the most affected states in Nigeria to make them understand the urgency of prioritizing maternal health. If you believe in yourself, you can conquer anything, so says South African Olympic gold medalist Casta Semenya. She was speaking at the Standard Bank Top Women Conference at Emperor's Palace Conference Center on Wednesday. This two-day gathering of the nation's most accomplished businesswomen and thought leaders is part of a series of symposiums across the country that shine a spotlight on the challenges and solutions facing women. Channel Africa's Ndantla Matlang reports. Olympic gold medalist and feminist icon Kesta Semenya led South Africa's national debate on gender equality and human rights as the headline speaker at the Standard Bank Top Women Conference. Shattering expectations on and off the track, Semenya holds more than 18 international gold medals and was named one of Time magazine's 100 most influential people of 2019, amongst others. Speaking at the conference, Semenya said her humble beginnings made her the tough woman she has become. If you believe in yourself, 
you can conquer anything. That's what, you know, has helped me a lot, you know, as a young girl. I still <laughs> believe that, you know, I still have a mountain to climb. Mm. And uh, mm. I think, I still believe uh, that um, I still have a lot to offer, you know, uh, to my people. There's still a lot of things that, you know, I still need to achieve. Uh, but mostly it comes with um, right decision making and then learning every day. And then obviously the most important thing is uh, education. Any young you know, girl or any young boy, if you're not educated, and then you're going to have a lot of problems you know, in future or growing up because you're going to feel like you know, no one is taking you seriously because uh, now it's, it's all about you know, educating yourself. You know. Obviously, I'll say one thing. You need to own you know, something. You, know. you need to own something so you can mm. be better. Mm. So also to create, you know, job opportunities for others because what I've learned now, most of people, we do not learn how to own. Mm. We learn how to work for others. I think if uh, we as young women and young boys, if we can learn to establish, you know, our own empire, you know, we build, you know, our own brands, I think it will be easy in coming years. And then you know that, okay, there's something that I own Mm. and then... I can also create, you know, opportunities for others. The Top Women Conference responds to the pertinent questions surrounding the barriers to success for women entrepreneurs with the showcase of some of South Africa's most influential mentors and change drivers bringing together veteran businesswomen and newcomer entrepreneurs for a program of exchange, dialogue and knowledge sharing. The Chief Executive Officer of African Fashion International, Dr. Precious Moloyi Mozebe, spoke about building a sustainable STEM pipeline for girls and why it is key in bridging the global gender gap. There are women in South Africa also today who are rising up in STEM fields as leaders and innovators and are shaping the world around us with their technical expertise. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with the proverb, if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you go together. And this is why I'd like to urge every one of us here today, I'd like you to encourage more girls and boys to enter the STEM fields. Tell our girls that they can become anything they wish to become. Tell them that it is important that they contribute their expertise to advance humanity and tell them that keeping up with technology, science and maths will lead them to phenomenal success. The conference will culminate into the annual Standard Bank Top Women Awards, one of the country's most prestigious gender empowerment events that recognizes those organizations and individuals who have gone the extra mile when it comes to uplifting women in business and in society in general. The awards taking place on Thursday evening will recognize those who have played an active role in changing the role of women in both the public and private sector. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekelua in Zambia. Premier of South Africa's Guazul-Natal province, Sihlesi Galala, says issues of climate change should be included into the education curriculum to ensure that children are educated about the dangers of climate change at school level. Zigalala was addressing delegates attending a two-day climate change summit held in Durban. The summit is aimed at finding lasting solutions to extreme weather conditions related to climate change. Fanele Mklongo reports. KwaZulu-Natal is holding its first climate change summit following floods that claimed the lives of 85 people in April this year. The floods also damaged houses, roads, power networks, schools and health facilities. In 2017, more than 10 people were killed in the province due to severe weather that included strong winds, hail and heavy rain in Ngutu area in the north and Durban. In the past few years, the province experienced droughts which reduced water levels in dams. This forced some municipalities to implement water restrictions. 
Zigalala says there is a need to resuscitate the Climate Change Council, which will run programs to educate communities about climate change. We must mainstream climate change mitigation and adaptation in local government and ensure that our economic plans are adapted accordingly. We need to mainstream issues of climate change into education and training curriculum and ensure that this becomes the new normal. It should not be strange to deal with issues of climate change. Investing on research, investing on programs of climate change should not be seen as a less priority because we want to deal with only immediate issues. Zigalala also encouraged communities to play their parts in nature conservation for future generations. In March, President Cyril Ramaphosa launched the Good Green Deeds program, which is aimed at encouraging South Africans to be environmentally conscious. Zigalala has called on communities to undertake recycling, which will help in keeping the environment clean while also generating profits for communities. Um, problematic area. Delegates are expected to craft a program to respond to the increasing threats of severe weather. I'm Fanele Mshongo in Deben. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. South African multinational scandal hit Stanhoff International says it has refinanced some 10 billion US dollars of debt in its overseas operations, which include brands such as Poundland in Britain and Francis Conferama, after pushing the deadline data back repeatedly. It says that the implementation of the restructuring is a major milestone on the company's journey to recovery. CEO Louis Dupree delivered a stock assessment of Stanhoff's options at the South African company's first public investor presentation since a seven-month billion dollar accounting fraud scandal broke. The share price of private medical health care providers and pharmaceuticals has dropped significantly since the release of South Africa's National Health Insurance Bill last week. Aspen Farm Care's share price has fallen by 30% and Discovery has shaved off over 13% in the stock price this week. Analysts say part of the cause is market jitters in the potential that the NHR will cap the price on medical products at over 20% lower than they currently are, which will affect the profit margins of Aspen and others. Portfolio Manager at Vestact, Michael Tran. To fund the NHI means that taxes are going to increase, which means disposable income for consumers will decrease. So how many consumers will have money left over to then contribute further to a medical aid scheme? Uh, other thing to note, though, is that uh, the NHI needs to be run by uh, uh, certain entities. Um, and there's a good chance that Discovery, who uh, account for a third of all medical aids uh, or medical aid members in the country, will put their hand up to say to the government, look, guys, you've collected the money. We've got the systems to uh, pay the hospitals and the healthcare professionals. We'll charge you a fee to do this. Ethiopia and China are set to partner to build a new 300 million US dollar industrial park in the East African country. Economic and Commercial Counselor at the Chinese Embassy in Ethiopia, Liu Yu, has told Shinua News that the construction of the park located in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa is expected to start before the end of the year. Liu says 85% of the funding needed to build this industrial park will be covered through Chinese government concessional loans, while 15% will come from the Ethiopian government. Malawi's Ministry of Industry, Trade and Tourism plans to review the country's bilateral, regional and multilateral agreements to ascertain whether they are beneficial or not. The ministry confirmed this on Monday following the hint by Minister of Finance, Economic Planning and Development, Joseph Mwana Mvega, about such a move. Currently, Malawi is a signatory and beneficiary of several 
bilateral and multilateral trade agreements. Namibia's central bank has cut its benchmark interest rate for the first time in two years as it seeks to boost the economy and maintain its currency's peg to the South African rand. The Monetary Policy Committee reduced the rate to 6.5% from 6.75% following South Africa's central bank reducing its repurchase rate to 6.5% last month. The U.S. dollar is trading at 363.44 Nigerian Naira, 10.92 Botswana Pula, 102.8 Kenyan Shilling and 13.3 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.99 Brazilian roll, 65.50 Russian ruble, 71.24 Indian rupee, 7.4 Chinese yuan and 15.26 to the South African rand. 82 pence, a British pound, 89 cents euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold, $1,518. Platinum, $843 pounds. The price of brand crude oil is at $59.13 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with the Olympic news and athletes. Now, double Olympic champion Kata Semenya, who has been locked in a battle over her testosterone levels with athletics authorities, says... She has not felt supported by other women in sport. Simeon will not be able to defend the 800 meters title at the World Championships next month after the Swiss Federal Tribunal reversed a ruling that temporarily lifted testosterone regulations imposed on her. Simeon during a women's conference in Johannesburg where she was the headline speaker. I still consider myself as an 800 meter runner. Uh, when you talk about uh, the one you asked about uh, other women supporting me or anyhow, uh, I think uh, it comes more into into the international stage where you see your own rivals. Um, they come with uh, this, uh, what can I call it? <laughs> this rude, you know, responses uh, in terms of uh, me, you know, competing against them, which for me is not a big deal because what I know is that. Um, we are all athletes. We should be supporting each other, whether you're losing or not. Simenya is appealing the Court of Arbitration for Sports, ruling that supported regulations introduced by the sports governing body, the International Association of Athletics Federation. They say that XY chromosome athletes with differences in sexual development can race in distances from 400 meters to a mile, only if they take medication to reach a reduced testosterone level. Despite the IWAF receiving support from some current and former athletes, the decision to reduce testosterone levels in women's athletics has also attracted criticism from human rights organizations. The United Nations Human Rights Council adopted a resolution in support of Simenya in March. You win a trophy before I win even the world title. There were a lot of questions. Yeah. Okay, at that particular time, you, you don't know what is it that they're talking about, mm. but you could feel something is off here. Yeah. Um, whatever they're doing here, it's not really what I'm used to. Um, you get questioned, you know, you, 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 you get examined, mm-hmm. and then you get told that uh, you might not run. I said, you know, I said to the, the president of the ASA that particular time, whoever is going to stop me from running, he has to drag me out of the track. Come on. Come on. You yeah. need to drag me out. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. And in football news, with the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee and its member South African Football Association now deadlock on negotiations to get the two South African football teams to the All-Africa Games in Rabat, Morocco. South Africa's 
Broadcasting Corporation Sport understands that the two parties were now trying to engage government. Now, Safa has booked the flight tickets already and the team had to postpone its flight. And the acting CEO, Russell Paul, is not giving up yet. No, the, the, the boys have been in camp for a while now and we requested uh, uh, foreign-based players to be released. Uh, we're not sure how this is going to go down with their clubs after having requested them to be here for, for a tournament which would help build them as well uh, and help uh, uh, stimulate their careers. Uh, we, if we don't get to success uh, by the end of day today, we're going to have to put those players back on a plane and send them back to their clubs. We are still in communication with CAF and they're also trying to see uh, what they can do. Uh, the request, however, from uh, the Moroccan LOC there is that they need a letter of uh, no objection from SASCOC. And we've asked SASCOC to please give us a letter to say they do not object to South Africa participating in this tournament and SASCOC have declined. Government obviously will say that it's a matter between uh, the Federation and the National Olympic Committee uh, and hence we obviously we've attempted to keep government abreast of, of the matter but again as we say we hope that sanity will prevail. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Concerns over abductions of political activists in Zimbabwe and Rwanda prepared to receive 500 migrants from Libya. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Maria Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news, is Stimela with a song titled Where Did We Go Wrong?